0: Hello, and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today.
1: Today on JOSPT Insights, we are sitting down with Dr. Lionel Chia To cover his recent article in JOSPT entitled, Beginning with the End in Mind, Implementing Backward Design to Improve Sports Injury Rehabilitation Practices, it's a great discussion focusing on clinical decision-making that helps you break down the big picture as well as the day-to-day journey of rehabilitating your patient back to sport. We hope you enjoy. Lionel's background is in physiotherapy, strength and conditioning, and physical education, and he previously worked with professional and international-level rugby union, baseball, and football athletes in Australia. My name is Dan Chapman. I'm a U.S.-based physical therapist and owner of Chapman PT in Baltimore, Maryland.
2: And I'm Chelsea Kuman, a physical therapist and athletic trainer at Stanford University Athletics.
1: Lionel, thank you so much for joining us on JOSPT Insights. Thank you
3: so much for having me, and I look forward to diving into it. Let's
1: just like start for those who don't know. Can you talk to us about what is backward design and when can yeah. it be implemented?
3: Backward design is a very simple idea is to try to encourage users to or in this case, clinicians or coaches to begin with the end in mind. And it's got roots in educational research, specifically in curriculum design. And I first chanced upon backward design in my previous life as a physical education teacher. And I think the goal of backward design in education was to facilitate learning and not just covering content. And I guess, likewise, in rehab, the goal is to facilitate an athlete's return to performance and not just focusing on rehab activities, say ice baths, foam rolling, laser, 3 by 10 of quad sets. Current rehab practices seem to be quite injury focused and might be like time or criterion based. And that's just a one small issue there. I think these practices ignore several other factors like who is the athlete? What is the athlete's injury history? What is a sport? How much time do we have? If it's a surgical case, does the surgeon have their own protocol? And if there are any other environmental constraints at this level, the factors like contracts, agents, insurance, that all come into play. So I think a more holistic approach is needed for rehab and sport
2: so much to consider in here that like such important things that just might might not be like top of mind or the first things that you think of, even when you're like, if somebody is really great and going through and like designing goals, just like it, it gives just a million things to think about. So let's get into that. So you guys take... The backward design and split into four different categories. So, I will, would love to hit on each of those four categories. And you already went into the first one. But for the first is defining that like return to play goal. So, what things, what are the biggest things you feel like you have to consider when you're actually defining that goal?
3: This is, I think, a work in progress, and we're very open to any critique or criticism and we'd love to to work with anyone to improve this process. The, the first stage of, of backward design in, in our minds and my co-authors and I where is, is to define the return to performance goal. And I think we need to do this with the athlete at the center of this process and that all relevant stakeholders should be collaborating during the stage to to agree or to come to a return to performance goal. And I think we should be thinking about several factors, some that I just listed, the injury, the sport, the athlete, what is the athlete's past medical history like, any other risk factors that you're seeing, any other psychosocial contributors to recovery, what does the athlete want, not all athletes are elite level athletes, some of them just want to be pain free, for example, some of them just want to be able to run with a kid again. And also, how much time do we have? What kind of medical interventions there are and any surgical timeline or protocol? So these are things that we should consider as when we are describing the return and performance goal.
2: I feel like that, like you mentioned, that the previous medical history, that just changes so much and the time constraints can really you can squeeze things or lengthen things depending on what you have there. I would love to highlight too, like considering the stakeholders was a really important thing that you guys highlighted of, you have to be able to talk to everybody involved. And obviously the athlete is the center, but like what the coach wants is going to factor in there and what the parents want is going to factor in there.
1: Now, you know, we just talked about stakeholders. We talked about the specific things, you know, specific to the athlete themselves, like past medical history, severity of surgery, all of that. Now let's talk about determining the key performance indicators, how do you do that? And and what are things that you need to consider when you're at that
3: step of defining the,
1: the return to play goal?
3: So now that we have our goals in stage one, I think, how do we, this stage two is about how do we know if we've successfully achieved those goals? And then that would be through KPIs or key performance indicators and determining KPIs to me is the trickiest, but also most important part of backward design. I spend a lot of time in this stage because it really requires careful deconstruction of the goal into its individual components. And these components could be like skill-related, technical-related, physiological or psychological-related. By psychological, it could be anything from perceptual motor or cognitive or emotional-related. So it really, whoever is involved in this process, we really need to sit down and deconstruct. And in my mind, the ideal KPIs would utilize pre-injury data and also be performance focused. And by performance focused, if an athlete needs to run, the KPI should be, or one of the KPIs should be running related and not just achieving, let's say, a newton meters per kilogram torque. And then naturally, if an athlete needs to swim, the some of the KPIs need to be swimming related. And that said, determination of um, KPIs is and should be a collaborative process. And it's a, and ultimately, I think it's up to the decision making team to see what they feel would give them the most confidence that they've successfully achieved the goal. And if they think that an impairment might, let's say the Newton meters per kilogram torque for ankle plantar flexion might be something that they feel is, is worthwhile as a KPI, then that should be the KPI. Say baseball catcher returning from a quadriceps strain might look like hitting maybe exit velo of more than 85 miles per hour or running, achieving pre injury max velocity of maybe 20 miles per hour or throwing defense. Maybe a pop time might be a good KPI under two seconds. And then you might have other physical or mental KPIs maybe be a peak vertical force, achieving pre injury, peak vertical force in mid flight pool or maybe even a temper scale or kinesiophobia or having some sort of cutoff score.
1: Do you also sometimes consult, not just looking at the demands of the sport, but also what is valuable to the athlete themselves as far as the KPI? So what do they
3: value? What do they find important in getting back to the sport? Yeah, 1000%. I think all the stages, especially the first two, should be very collaborative. And the athletes should have input on what these goals are. I think that is how we create buy-in, right? If the athlete believes in the these KPIs.
2: Performance things, but also like environments. So they need to be able to actually hit that, whatever, like their velo on a specific playing surface or with actual teammates around, like people are watching them. I think we're just really awesome things to think about. And I think they get lost sometimes when we get stuck in our clinics. But yeah, we can do this like, and it's great because we're thinking about it and we're not doing anything else. And then other things happen on the field.
3: You hit the nail on the head when you talked about being specific. So if if the KPIs could be written in a smart way, specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, and and time-bound, that would be ideal.
2: We have determined the KPIs. So now can we get into the third category of actually assessing that current performance?
3: Now that we've determined our KPIs, we need to determine how far away the athlete is from achieving those KPIs. And I think this step is necessary for two main reasons. Number one is to be efficient with everyone's time and resources. For example, we have an athlete that's trying to return to running and they currently can jog on the spot. There's no need to start from level zero, like walking in the pool or in an alter G when we could probably work around running on the spot and progress or regress a bit from there. And on the, the second point, I think not all of us see athletes right on day dot. There might be situations where they get referred by a general practitioner that got referred to by a surgeon, and you might see them once a week and they have their own physical therapist or athletic trainer on the other club. There are just a lot of people involved. So I think assessing current performance, and figuring out what the steps are needed, what kind of steps are needed between the, the KPI and where they are now is going to be, is going to be crucial.
2: Can you highlight just a couple of things maybe that would be ways to measure and get a really good idea of where they're at?
3: I think the gold standard, I say it in quotation marks, would be pre-injury data. I'm lucky to be working in an environment where my athletes come in, we test them. But in, in circumstances where we don't have pre-injury data, I think deferring to the literature would be the next best step. Like you spoke about the HOP test, using normative data in a cohort that's representative of the cohort that you're working in. And a lot of these assessments also are context dependent. I could suggest a phosphate test, but um, Dan might not have a phosphate in his clinic or in a setting that he's working with. So I think we need to think about the KPIs first, even before we, we think about assessing current performance, the context would drive what kind of KPIs we come up with. How do you use these to then plan what you're going
1: to do with these patients to get them back and ready to get on the field?
3: Stage four is where I think we would have the most fun on planning and being creative. So as of once we hit stage four, we know our KPIs from stage two. We also know our starting point from stage three. Now we need to fill in the in-between. How do we get from the starting point all the way to our KPIs and eventually hit our goals? And in this part of the article, my co-authors and I highlighted two main things. We we spoke about the challenge point where effective practice occurs. So activities that are or practices that are far outside the challenge point, they could be too easy or too hard, they would not efficiently elicit the desired outcomes. The goal in our minds would be to prescribe and plan for activities around this challenge point. Challenge points do change. I think that determining the initial challenge point is, is going to be important. But as we go, as athletes improve, these challenge points would change. Practitioners should be mindful to have a way to monitor them, or they might even want to set set mini checkpoints. And I think the second thing to highlight would be progressing and regressing activities. There are probably like a million permutations of, of how we can do this, considering the number and type of variables we have, like volume, speed, training surfaces, degrees of freedom, sensory input. And I would really recommend the work of Blanchard and Glasgow, where they presented like a theoretical model to progress and regress exercises. Like for example, one one of the illustrations that they gave was how do we move a running progression from a stable indoor environment running on regular sneakers to an unstable outdoor environment running in cleats? Like, are we gonna be linearly increasing volume and speed even though the environments change? And if the answer is no, then how are we gonna vary the variables during the first day where we transition from indoor and in shoes to outdoor and cleats? Are we decreasing reps? Are we decreasing sets? Are we maintaining sets? The second researcher that really influenced our writing in this section would be Matt Taberna and his work on the control chaos continuum, where he speaks about one end of the continuum that is more highly controlled. By that he means something that's less variable, more anticipated activities. And then we move to the other end of the continuum where we see more chaotic, more variable, more unanticipated scenarios. And an example I could come up with would be like a soccer winger that's returning from a hemi injury. A high control environment could be, say, crippling with a ball on his own with no external perturbation while a higher chaos environment could be dribbling with the ball to get past the defender. So I think the control chaos continuum and the being very deliberate with how we progress and regress exercise, especially in stage four of the backward design process, would be very fun to to implement, very fun to plan out. And I hope that practitioners keep these two things in mind.
2: If you just look at this and you talk about it, oh, this is just planning goals like I know how to do this but it just provides so many more again things to think about and then just it's a reminder too for like clinicians who've been out there for a while who could like do a lot of these kind of protocols and rehabs was like pretty easily I don't have to think about a lot of things but making sure that it's individualized for that athlete is just a really good reminder for I just feel like from top to bottom like on experience for clinicians
1: and I think the emphasis too on the challenge point moving is so crucial you hate to see it but everyone does see it from time to time where someone talks about they've been doing the same exercises for three weeks, right? And they're they're not really sure what why they're doing them. Every time the athlete or the patient comes in the door, it needs to be a reassessment to, to make sure that you're hitting the challenge point and whether the challenge point has changed. maybe it's changed, it's gone forward, or maybe they didn't get much sleep. But they're super stressed and you actually have to regress things. So that challenge point is always moving. It's just so important.
2: But you have two examples highlighted in the article. If you want to go through one of those or if you were excited about something else of just maybe like hitting on kind of a, a quick, because this this could be an elaborate process if you really went into it, a quick idea of like how to do each step of this.
3: Yeah. So this is a soccer player and just a bit of a preamble. This is a soccer player returning from a hamstring strain injury. Jake is 18 years old, semi-pro soccer player competing at a state level, first grade competition so it's returning from a grade two hamstring strain An injury occurred three weeks ago during a match when he was sprinting to defend against a counter-attack and then he could not play on and he was substituted jake has had two previous hemi injuries one on each leg over the past four years and Jacob is a final year high school student with aspirations to play professionally and does not have any major family or financial commitments this is what we see in the clinic and in our rehab settings and I think protocols generalized protocols do not allow for us to take into consideration all these different nuances as medical history family commitments or that he what his goals are yeah so so hopefully the backward design process helps with that so looking at stage one his return to performance goal is coach jake himself his parents SNC coach and physio, physical therapist came together and they would like to return to have Jake return to performance as a first-team soccer midfielder after a grade two left hamstring strain. So there isn't like a timeline for this um, scenario. So some of the key performance indicators would be to achieve a coach subjective rating of match performance of more than eight out of 10 in training scrimmages across three successive training sessions. The other KPI would be to achieve a pre-injury sprint velocity of 24 kilometers per hour five times during training scrimmages with no increase in 24-hour symptoms. The next KPI would be to achieve 80% success rate in delivering five in-swinging corner kicks from the right-hand corner on the six-yard box as specified by the coach in a training drill. These KPIs, as you can see, they might or might not be evidence-based in itself, but this is what the team of stakeholders believe it's important where if Jay could hit all three KPIs that they feel confident that they could return, that he could return as a first team soccer midfielder. So his current performance to his first KPI, the subjective rating one, is that he's currently only participating in self-paced non-contact drills. He's got quite a high temper scale for kinesiophobia questionnaire score. He was responding strongly agreed to questions like not making any unnecessary movements to prevent his pain from re from worsening and also that his he feels like his accident has put his body at risk for the rest of his life so there are a few yellow flags there in relation to the sprint kpi he is able to sprint but once he starts striding once he starts opening up his stride he starts doing so asymmetrically at anything above 15 kilometers an hour and eccentric hamstring testing reveals like a 20% right asymmetry and a 10% decrease in on both legs in force production. At this point in time, it seems like Jake is not reporting any pain or soreness. And for the last KPI, he, is, he seems like he is not able to actually get sufficient distance on his corner kicks. He reports the main barrier as a hesitation to really follow through on the kick. And he's unable to fully relax his hamstrings on any passive range of motion testing. And otherwise there's no pain or any technical issues leading up to an on contact with the ball. It's mainly the follow up. We start planning our rehab activities. One type of activity might be able to take off a few or one, one or more KPIs. The first one that we looked at was any manipulation of training activities to start reintroducing chaos any sort of variability, any sort of external perturbation, any sort of competition. And we could, I gave the example to do that through introducing opposition, defending at like various intensities. So we could have like mannequins to start with and we could then progress on to like overload situations where it's Jake against two or three defenders. And also we could play with the environment by introducing small-sided games on a long and narrow pitch. It would encourage a lot more running and dribbling with the ball compared to something that's on a wider pitch where Jake would more think about passing or looking for other options rather than actually dribbling to get past the defender. And another uh, rehab activity or rehab activity category, if I might if I could put it that way, would be to consider delaying competition to after fifteen weeks, considering that this is a recurrent injury. He's got this is probably his third one. There's research that shows that there's some sort of more risky time period right after an injury where if we do return an athlete too soon, that the risk of re-injury is higher to address his eccentric hamstring strength. Asymmetry, we spoke about the typical weight room activities, progressive overload type of principles to increase his hamstring strength, but also not forgetting that sprinting in itself is a big stimulus to increase hamstring strength progression of sprinting activities alone could also complement any sort of weight room efforts to increase hemi strength. Consider increasing strength and power of longer distance passing and kicking. You have kicking practice where you measure, where you have his, where you decide, okay, Jake has to be, has to kick at least 30 meters by eight repetitions in a certain training session. And If he does not achieve that during the training session itself, we could consider topping up at the end of the training session just so that we get to that workload. I think workload is used a lot in the GPS and the running scene, but it could also be kicking workload. It could be throwing workload that we could consider in such a situation. And the last one would be to progress or regress activities based on factors such as time, criteria or symptoms. Rather than having a fixed time-based criteria, we could do something that is more flexible, figuring out his challenge point, increasing it gradually, and assessing his 24-hour symptoms and acute symptoms.
2: And it's just a great reminder of just all, again, all of the things that can be considered when doing that. Maybe it's not if you just took like a normal okay hamstring strain, we're going to do this strength and then this kind of strength and then we're going to run this far and then this hard and then you should be back. So just a lot more things to make it all about Jake. All right, Lionel, we really appreciate you taking the time to go through this awesome article that you and your co-authors put together. An incredible resource, highly recommend it, especially for literally anybody, but especially the athletes. So thank you so much for joining us today on JOSBT Insights.
3: Thank you so much, Chelsea. Thank you so much, Dan. I, I had a blast, so really appreciate it. And we will
1: have the articles that you referenced in the show notes as well. One last time, we want to thank Dr. Lionel Chia for sitting down with us, sharing his time, sharing his knowledge with us and all of you. And as always, we want to thank you for listening to JOSPT Insights, and we'll see you next week.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights.